Today is Wednesday, December 2nd. We are entering the season of Advent, but we are also standing in the confessional corner as we wrestle with theology this week, looking at Article 2 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, beginning with paragraph 26. We've talked a little bit about the difference in the definitions between original sin and concupiscence between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics. And Melanchthon takes this time to, especially in these first few paragraphs, talk about the fact that concupiscence is a sin, and then spends the rest of the article driving that point home. So reading from Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, we are beginning with paragraph 26. We are right in our description of original sin when we say that it is not being able to believe God and not being able to fear and love God. We are right when we say that it includes concupiscence, which seeks fleshly things contrary to God's word. This means when it seeks not only the pleasure of the body, but also fleshly wisdom and righteousness. Therefore, it holds God in contempt when it trusts in these as good things. It is not only the ancient teachers, but even the more recent teachers, at least the wiser ones among them, who teach that original sin is both the defects I have mentioned and concupiscence. Thomas Aquinas says, Original sin includes the loss of original righteousness, and with this a disorderly arrangement of the parts of the soul. Therefore, it is not pure loss, but a corrupt habit. Bonaventure says, When the question is asked, what is original sin? The correct answer is that it is immoderate concupiscence. The correct answer is also that it is a lack of the righteousness that is due, and in one of these replies, the other is included. This is also Hugo's opinion when he says that original sin is ignorance in the mind and concupiscence in the flesh. He is saying that when we are born, we bring with us ignorance of God, unbelief, distrust, contempt, and hatred of God. When he mentions ignorance, he includes these other things. These opinions also agree with Scripture. Paul sometimes clearly calls it a defect, as in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. In another place, he calls it concupiscence, at work in our members to bear fruit for death, Romans 7.5. We could cite more passages relating to both parts, but when a fact is so clear, there is no need of further testimonies. The intelligent reader realizes easily that to be without the fear of God and without faith are more than actual guilt. They are abiding defects in our unregenerate nature. So when Melanchthon starts his talk about concupiscence being sin, and what original sin really is, he starts right off when he talks not only the ancient fathers, but the more recent ones, and begins with the Roman Catholic linchpin from the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas. If you are wanting to prove your point against a Roman Catholic theologian, especially pre-Council of Trent, pre-Reformation, you want to find your answer in Thomas Aquinas. Because everything their theology is based on is based on the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas. Bonaventure and Hugo are also other great teachers of the Middle Ages that are highly respected in the Roman Catholic theology circles. And I love how Melanchthon just goes into the points of, we could cite more passages relating to both parts, but when a fact is so clear that there is no further need of testimonies. And we'll see this throughout the Apology, because Melanchthon is not writing this to be read to the emperor in an imperial diet setting like the Augsburg Confession. 
this is actually just a book to be published because he knows the Roman Emperor, the Pope, and all of the legates that they could possibly have in front of them, like at the Diet at Augsburg, are not going to listen to him. So he just publishes this book as an apology in defense of the Augsburg Confession. So he will write what he wants, and he gets very lippy at times with the Roman Catholic theologians. He goes on to say in paragraph 32, When it comes to original sin, we hold nothing different from either Scripture or the Church Catholic. Rather, we cleanse from corruptions and restore to light the most important declarations of Scripture and the Fathers, which have been covered over by the sophistry and controversies of the theologians of our day. It is more than clear that modern theologians do not notice what the Fathers mean when they speak about a defect. The knowledge of original sin is absolutely necessary. The magnitude of Christ's grace cannot be understood unless our diseases are recognized. Christ says in Matthew 9.12 and Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician. The entire notion that a person is righteous is mere hypocrisy before God. We must acknowledge that our heart is by nature destitute of fear, love, and confidence in God. For this reason, the prophet Jeremiah says, After I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded. Likewise, I said in my alarm, All mankind are liars. That is, they do not think correctly about God. The one issue that we have in the Christian church, especially in America with American evangelicalism, is that people want to throw out original sin. They want to get rid of it and say that we can do all of this by ourselves. We can pull ourselves up spiritually by our bootstraps, just like we've been taught throughout American history, that physically we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and have those rags-to-riches stories like we have throughout American history. God says, no, you can't understand the full weight, the full gravity of the gospel if you do not understand your sinful condition by nature, and that you cannot free yourself from it. Two things jump out at me as I read this paragraph from the liturgy found in the Lutheran Service Book. Divine Service Setting 4, uh, beginning on page 203. In the Confession and Absolution, it says, Since we are gathered to hear God's word, call upon him in prayer and praise, and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of this altar, let us first consider our unworthiness and confess before God and one another that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. Together as his people, let us take refuge in the infinite mercy of God our Heavenly Father, seeking his grace for the sake of Christ, and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Also in the rite of corporate confession and absolution, which I often use on Ash Wednesday, we hear in the confessional address, But when we examine our hearts and consciences, we find nothing in us but sin and death, from which we are in capable of delivering ourselves. Therefore, our Lord Jesus Christ has had mercy on us. For our benefit, he became man so that he might fulfill for us the whole will and law of God and to deliver us, took upon himself our sin and the punishment we deserve. We cannot fully understand either one of those things in 
confession and absolution if we do not truly understand the depths that original sin has brought us down to. Melanchthon makes that point entirely clear in that paragraph. So we continue in paragraph 35. Here our adversaries attack Martin Luther because he wrote that original sin remains after baptism. Here's the big thing that Melanchthon has to talk about for the next few paragraphs. They add that this point was justly condemned by Leo X, but his imperial majesty will discover a clear slander on this point. Our adversaries know in what sense Luther intended this remark that original sin remains after baptism. Luther always writes that baptism removes the guilt of original sin. However, the material, as they call it, of the sin, concupiscence, remains. He also adds that the Holy Spirit, given through baptism, begins to put to death the concupiscence and begins to create new movements within a person. Augustine speaks in the same way when he says, Sin is forgiven in baptism, not in such a way that it no longer exists, but so that it is not charged. Here he confesses openly that sin exists. It remains, although it is not counted against us any longer. Augustine's judgment on this point was so agreeable to those who came after him that it is often quoted in the decrees of church councils. And against Julian, Augustine says, The law, which is in the members, has been overturned by spiritual regeneration and remains in the mortal flesh. It has been overturned because the guilt has been forgiven in the sacrament, by which believers are born again. But it remains because it produces desires against which believers struggle. Our adversaries know that Luther believes and teaches this, and since they cannot deny this, they instead tried to pervert his words in an effort to crush an innocent man. Augustine said back in the 5th century, and has been over and over and over again quoted in church councils, that original sin exists and remains after baptism. Baptism does not destroy original sin, like the Roman church teaches ever since basically the Fourth Lateran Council of the 13th century. So now Melanchthon says they have to go and pervert and twist his words so that it says something that doesn't mean what it actually says, or says something that disagrees with them so they have something to deny. He continues in paragraph 38. They argue that concupiscence is a penalty, but not a sin. Luther maintains that it is a sin. It has been said above that Augustine defines original sin as concupiscence. If they don't like this, then let them argue with Augustine. Besides, Paul says in Romans 7, 7, I would not have known what it is to covet, concupiscence, if the law had not said you shall not covet. Likewise, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 7, 23. No amount of sophistry can overthrow these points. They clearly call concupiscence sin, which is not charged against those who are in Christ, although by nature it is deserving of death where it is not forgiven. All controversies aside, this is what the fathers believe. Augustine, in a long discussion, refutes the opinion of those who think that concupiscence in a person is not a fault, but merely an incidental and inconsequential matter, just as color of the body or ill health is said to be an ad offering. So is concupiscence a penalty or a sin? Is it something that is deeply rooted inside of us or is it something that has been imposed on us? Well, the Apostle Paul calls it a sin. Augustine calls it a sin. Luther has called it a sin. Most of the popes and church councils have called it a sin up until 
the couple hundred years before the Reformation. Then it becomes a penalty because they want to sneak in Pelagianism and the idea that we can somehow help manufacture our own salvation and that we are not completely condemned and utterly hating God by birth because that's not an attractive notion. He goes on to point out the adversary's issues with what actually even sin is in paragraphs 42 to 45. But when our adversaries argue that the evil inclination is an adiaphron, not only many passages of scripture, but simply the entire church contradict them. Who has ever dared to say that the following things, even if perfect agreement could not be reached, are indifferent matters? Doubt about God's wrath, His grace, God's word, anger at the judgments of God, being provoked because God does not at once deliver one from afflictions, murmuring because the wicked enjoy a better fortune than the good, to be urged on by wrath, lust, the desire for glory, wealth, and so on. Godly people acknowledge these things in themselves, as appear in the Psalms and the Prophets. But in the scholastic academies, they took from philosophy entirely different ideas. Desires and inclinations are neither good nor evil, neither praiseworthy nor worthy of blame. Likewise, that sin is only sin if it is a voluntary action. Philosophers were expressing such ideas about civil righteousness, not about God's judgment. They unwisely add other ideas as well, saying that nature is not evil. Properly understood, we do not reject this idea, but it is not right to take this understanding of what God creates as good and apply it to original sin. This is precisely what we read in the works of the scholastics, who wrongly mingle philosophy or civil teachings about ethics with the gospel. These matters are not only disputed in the schools, but as is usually the case, were carried from the schools to the people. These teachings prevailed and nourished confidence in human strength and suppressed the knowledge of Christ's grace. Therefore, Luther wanted to declare how great the consequences of original sin are and how weak human beings are as a result. So he taught that these remnants of original sin after baptism are not by nature adiaphron in people, but that we need Christ's grace so that they are not counted against us as sin. And to put them to death, mortify them, we need the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 Philosophy has the idea that sin is only a sin if it's voluntary. That you only sin if you do something of your own free will that is wrong. Wow. If that were the case, there would be very little that people would call sin. Oh, wait, wait. Isn't that exactly where we're sitting in 2020? There is very little that people call sin that isn't something that is a voluntary action done by a person on the outside. Hmm. Not much has changed in the last 500 years, has it? And we can even go back further beyond the Reformation. Nothing has really changed in the entire history of mankind. People still want to minimize sin, which then Melanchthon talks about the issues of minimizing sin in paragraphs 46 to 50. 
The scholastics minimize sin and punishment when they teach that people can fulfill God's commandments under their own power. But in Genesis, the punishment imposed because of original sin is described differently. For there, human nature is subjected not only to death and other bodily evils, but also to the devil's kingdom. In Genesis 3.15, there is this fearful sentence that proclaims, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Defects and concupiscence are both sin and punishment. Death and other bodily evils and the dominion of the devil are properly understood to be punishments. Human nature has been delivered into slavery and is held captive by the devil. He fills human nature with a passionate desire for wicked opinions and errors and pushes it to sins of every kind. Just as the devil cannot be conquered except by Christ's help, so we cannot free ourselves from this slavery by our own strength. World history shows how great and powerful the devil's kingdom is. The world is full of blasphemies against God and wicked opinions. The devil keeps all tied up many hypocrites who appear holy and who are wise and righteous in the world's eyes. Even greater vices are seen in other people. Since Christ was given to us to remove both these sins and these punishments and to destroy the devil's kingdom, sin, and death, we will never be able to recognize Christ's benefits unless we understand our evils. For this reason, our preachers have diligently taught all about these things. They have not delivered anything that is new, but have set forth Holy Scripture and the judgment of the Holy Fathers. What happens when you minimize sin and punishment? You minimize Jesus. You minimize your need for Jesus. You minimize what exactly Jesus came to do. So then, instead of being a Savior who dies for the sins of the world... He becomes a moral teacher that just advises you how to live a better life than Confucius or Buddha or even Muhammad. Any other religion except for Christianity. Because all of them minimize sin and punishment by saying that you have to make do with what you have and what you've done and appease your God. From that. That is not what Christianity has ever taught. But then again, that's what's being taught in the schools and in the seminaries and the monasteries at the time of the Reformation. That we can do all of these things by ourselves and we don't really need Jesus except for to either start it or finish it. Everything else is up to us. That my friends, was the teaching of Pelagius that was deemed heretical in the 3rd century. 1,300 years later, the church has come all the way back around saying, yeah, we agree with those guys. Except for we still condemn them as heretics. But we believe the same thing. Their idea as to how that's different was simple. We're a more evolved people. We understand things better now than they did in the third century. And that's exactly the way most Americans talk today, is that 21st century Americans are more evolved than 19th century Americans, or 17th century Americans, or 15th and 16th century Germans, and all any other time in history that we are more evolved, so we have a better idea of being able to say, what is true when we describe the things that are false as being true. 
It's just another one of the great paradoxes and conundrums of this world. Melanchthon finishes off his article on original sin with paragraph 51. And he writes this as a capstone on this article. We think this will satisfy his imperial majesty about the childish and trivial sophistry the adversaries used to pervert our, our, our article on original sin. We know that we believe correctly in harmony with the Church Catholic of Christ. If the adversaries renew this controversy, there will be more than enough of us to reply and to defend the truth. In this case, our adversaries, to a great extent, do not understand what they are saying. They often speak in contradictory ways and do not explain, either correctly or logically, what is the essence of original sin and what they call a defect. We are unwilling here to examine their arguments in any further subtle detail. We think it is worthwhile just to recite in customary and well-known words the belief of the Holy Fathers, which we also follow. There are many other things that Melanchthon could come up with, but he's like, why waste our time wading through the weeds? These are the big things. These are the things that they talk about and preach about very openly that are against the scriptures, that are against the fathers. This is what needs to be pointed out. Here it is. We could go on, but this suffices to get our point across, which is exactly what Melanchthon wanted to do with Article 2, was to get the Lutheran point across of what the true scriptural definition of original sin is. So then briefly, I want to look at Article 3 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. In this edition of the Book of Concord, just made paragraph 52 of Article 2. This is another one of the articles that the adversaries approved because, well, to not approve of this would be to show your, their own issues with being an orthodox Christian body. The adversaries approve Article 3 in which we confess that there are two natures in Christ. The human nature was assumed by the word into the unity of his person. Christ suffered and died to reconcile the Father to us and was raised again to reign, to justify, and to sanctify believers according to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Real simple, two natures in Christ, human and divine. He is the Son of Mary and the Son of God, just as the Apostles and Nicene Creed say. that There's nothing different in what we say and the Roman theologians said they're absolutely right. We don't believe anything different about Jesus, which is great, because we at least get the person of Jesus right and the same together. But, again, as we saw with original sin, if you get something else out of whack, it starts going through everything else. So that's all for this month in the Confessional Corner. We will start our, who knows, probably close to year-long journey through Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, which I talked about when I covered Articles 4 through, I think, 14, that they took six lines in the original, said a few things about it in like 12 lines, which then turns out to be almost 100 pages in the Book of Concord as a response to it. Because, well, justification is one of those things that, as Melanchthon says in Article 4, is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. If we have justification wrong, we have everything else wrong, because it affects everything else.
but we'll start talking about more of that next month. Next week is Pro Wrestling America. Once again, we have completed our loop around the Upper Midwest. We are back in Minneapolis next week. And then the following week, we are concluding our digging deeper into Exodus, looking at the erection of the tabernacle in in chapter 40, and then doing a quick review of the things from Exodus as we get ready in January to go dig deeper into the Psalms. But until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.